thing we will observe the ordinance of believers baptism and deacons will meet this morning at the end of the service with uh, those who have been through the preparatory class and our candidates for baptism and church membership so that'll be in the music room right back around behind the instruments there so this morning we're starting down the home stretch in the book of Romans as we get into chapter 12 we reach the last major division of the book the devotional section of chapters 12 through 16 these chapters are all about practical life application of the truth that has been taught in the first 11 chapters of the book and we find that the uh, book is divided into three main sections the first part being doctrinal truth God's basic truth that he reveals to us about uh, salvation reveals to us about righteousness needed righteousness provided and righteousness experienced through a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ we find the next three chapters 9 10 and 11 which we've just been studying are uh, dispensational they answer the big question is God finished with Israel or is God going to fulfill in a in a literal and physical fashion the promises that he made to Abraham and his descendants and if 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 so, if, he, if he's not going to fulfill those, can we really depend upon the promises that he has made to us? We read in Romans 9, 10, and 11, God is not finished with Israel. He's got a glorious future for Israel. They are set aside now in the church age, and God's working primarily through the church, but God is going to restore Israel to the place of blessing and the central focus in his program. We can depend on all of the promises of God. God will keep his promise to Israel. He'll keep his promises to us. Now we get to chapter 12, and we look at the devotional part, the practice of righteousness. The behavior that's called for in the last five chapters of Romans is based upon the truth that's taught in the first 11 chapters of the book. We find this type of an order is really given a number of different places in scripture where God gives truth and then there's kind of the so what okay if this is all true and we experience this from God how's that affect my life here and now and in Romans chapter 12 through 16 we're going to see that uh, there's truth revealed for you and me to believe in order to be righteous in the eyes of God and then in the last part of the book, we are shown what a genuine faith in Jesus Christ will do to our daily living. Uh, very simply put, right belief results in right behavior. And a, a righteousness that is really possessed results in a righteousness that is practiced. If you really have that kind of relationship with Christ, it is going to affect your life. And we find spelled out here for us in these chapters what's going what's gonna to happen. Some of the things are going to show up in our lives. In chapter 12, we find it describes some uh, three basic relationships that flow out of a right relationship with God. We talk about our relationship with God in the first couple of verses here, our relationship with self in verses 3 to 8, and in the last part of the chapter, uh, how, does a righteous, how does a right relationship with God affect our relationship with other people well we find that in connection with that and I had those verses in there they disappeared somehow 
for my presentation. But just to kind of sum them up for you, they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul. And then the, uh, the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on that, hang all the law and the prophecies. The, the, the prophets, if to, to sum up basically what the Old Testament teaching is. Here it is. To sum up what biblical teaching is. Love God with, with all you are, all you, who you are, everything about you. Give that all to God. Love Him. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 that Jesus is, is referring to in His quotation there, it also says that we should love God with all of our might, all of our strength. So basically, if, if we're going to be pleasing to God, we need to love God with all who we are. Everything about us, everything within us needs to be demonstrated in a love for God. Paul refers to the same thing here in uh, Romans chapter 12. We love God by surrendering ourselves to Him. And uh, we find that the, the begins with a, a surrender of the soul. If you're going to love with God, God with all who you are and everything about you, it begins with a surrender of your, your soul. And Paul assumes this in Romans 12, 1. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren. The people he's speaking to here, he assumes are people who have surrendered their, whole, their souls to God. People that know Christ as Savior. People that are believers. And once we've done that, then we can obey the things that follow on. Until you've surrendered your soul to God, you can't really give Him your body. Until you've surrendered your soul to God and become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and know Him as your Savior, you can't really obey Him in the things we find here in, in Romans 12 through 16. So we find that the surrender of the soul is assumed here. He's talking to believers. He's talking to brothers. Now, we talk about the surrender of the soul. What are we talking about? What's the soul? Well, we find that the soul is the invisible inner part of man. It's our inner man. It is the very essence of who we are. It's our, our being, the essence of our being. It's our inner man. It's the eternal, immaterial part of man. It, it's who we are. We find that God created Adam, created his body, and then he breathed into him and made him a, a living soul. You and I have two parts to us. We have our body, we have our soul, a material part and immaterial part. When physical death happens, the soul moves out of the body. The immaterial part leaves the material part. And uh, we find that the soul is that immaterial part. And uh, the soul is what's spoken about in Scripture many times as the, the object of redemption. Now, when we get saved, obviously it affects our bodies. One of these days we'll get resurrection bodies uh, in God's appointed time. But to begin with, our redemption involves our soul. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, it says, We believe to the saving of our soul. James 1.21 says, The implanted word saves our souls. In 1 Peter 1.9, it says, the end of our faith is the salvation of our souls. We need that eternal, immaterial part of us to be redeemed, to be delivered, to be brought into a right relationship with God. And when our soul is saved, 
Certainly, it also does affect our bodies. But the salvation of our soul is about that inner man being brought into a right relationship with God. And uh, what, what an essential thing that is. And, and it's extremely important that we do, we do surrender our soul to the Lord. Now, how do we do that? How do we surrender our soul to God? Well, first of all, we recognize we're sinners in need of a Savior. We repent of our sin. And the, the core of sin really is, is ignoring and rebelling against God and living for self. That's what sin's all about. Every sin falls into that category. And in order for our soul to be saved, we need to come to a place in our life where we recognize that we've been ignoring God. We've been living for self and not for God. Now, we can believe God exists. We, we might believe that from the time that we're, we're uh, taught as little children, about taught about Jesus, taught about the Bible, taught about God. But salvation comes when we come to a place of commitment. We recognize we're sinners in need of a Savior, and we take Christ to be our Savior. We stop living for ourselves, and we start living for the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, it involves trusting Christ as Savior, believing in Him, entrusting ourselves to Him, trusting Him with our eternal destiny and with our life down here as well. It involves coming into a living relationship with God as Father when we become His child. And that doesn't happen automatically. In any of our, even if you're born into a Christian home and taught about Christ from the time that you're a child, you're not automatically a Christian. It takes that, takes that act of commitment, of surrendering our soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it's essential, really, that we do that. It's an absolute essential that we do that. In, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus speaks about the fact that we need to if we desire to come after him, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. He says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he asks this great question. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses what? Loses his own soul. What profit is there? You gain the whole world. You have everything this world can offer you. Fame, fortune, popularity, power. You gain all of that. You lose your soul. What profit is there in that? None. Eternally. And I'll tell you, our souls are eternal. And it matters that our souls be redeemed. Jesus asked, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world, loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for your soul? You can't. If you've lost it, you can't get it. It, it. We need our soul to be redeemed by the Lord. So the surrender of the soul is absolutely essential. When we try to keep control of our own soul and pamper our soul, we lose it. Gaining the world and losing our soul eternally is the poorest trade that anybody could ever make. And the surrender of our soul must be, be first. Before we give anything else to God, we have to give them ourselves. Our soul is our essence. We have to present ourselves to him. Uh, Paul speaks about the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, 5. And he said the Corinthians, first of all, gave themselves before they gave anything else. That's in a context where he's talking about financial gifts. So the surrender of the soul must be first. And in calling his readers brethren, Paul is assuming that they have experienced the salvation of their soul 
souls as a result of placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord. And my prayer for everybody gathered in this room this morning is that each and every one of us could say with confidence, I've committed my soul to Jesus Christ. Christ is my Savior. I've surrendered my soul to Him. There was a time in my life when I recognized I was living for self and not for the Lord, and I surrendered myself to Him. That's what salvation is all about. That's what it's all about. And, and if we've surrendered our soul to Him, guess what? That shows up in our body. It shows up in what we do in our, our flesh. You can't divorce the soul from, from the total being. In fact, sometimes the term soul is used in Scripture to talk about the whole person, uh, referring to the body and soul, really. So you, you, you can't divorce the two from each other. And, and we find that involved with the surrender of the soul here is talked about. He mentions the surrender of the body. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, surrender your bodies, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And, and this petition that Paul brings to the, the, to the readers there in Romans and to us as well, he, he asks us to surrender our bodies to the Lord. And we find that he's, he's trying to get us to surrender our bodies from being properly motivated. And he finds that the first thing he does is he says, this is a... This is a plea I'm bringing to you. I, I, I'm beseeching you. Uh, it's not necessarily a command, but it's, he's requesting that of them. And it's a, really, it's something you ask them to do in, in response to something, in response to some, some facts, response to some truth. In fact, right after he says, I beseech you, brethren, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, what we have here, is that very important hinge. Somebody said, therefore is a hinge. And I've stated this before, when you see a therefore in Scripture, what do you do? You look and see what it's there for. What you're about to read, what you're about to be told, is somehow connected with, with what you read previously, what you see coming before that. And so this request that Paul's making is on the basis of all that's come before. It's on the basis of what we read in, in the end of chapter 11, where we see the, 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 the great doxology of who our God is, and, and we see something about His wisdom and His knowledge and His judgments and His power. And as we go back through the, what we've read so far in the book of Romans, we find out that the book starts out pointing out our tremendous need. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. We can't be saved by acts of righteousness that we do, but we can be justified freely by His grace, by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and God gives us that opportunity by His grace. And we read in that, that, that great statement in Romans chapter 5, where sin abounds, what's it say there? Grace superabounds. This is Super Bowl day, right? I got something better for you than the Super Bowl. It's God's super abounding grace. There's no amount of sin that you can be guilty of that God's grace can't take care of. There's no one particular sin that you have committed sometime in your life that God can't forgive, that the blood of Jesus Christ can't wipe clean. That's tremendous to contemplate, isn't it? That's what Jesus did for us. And how do we tap into that? 
We tap into that by faith. Not by going on some religious pilgrimage from here to Jerusalem or here to any place, but by recognizing we are sinners in need of a Savior and by faith taking Jesus Christ to be our Savior. And when we take him to be our Savior, we got tremendous promises. We got great promises like the, the fact that the sufferings of this present world for believer are not worthy to be compared with the glory that God has in store for us. We got great promises that, that tell us that God works all things together for good to those who loved him, to those who were the called according to his purpose. We have great promises telling us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not life or death or things above or things below. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Romans 9, 10, and 11 tell us God keeps his promises. God keeps his word. So in response to God's grace, in response to God's mercy, in response to the salvation that he makes available to us and the justification we can have by, by faith, he says, therefore, on the basis of all that, consider what God's done for you and how wonderful he's been to you. And when you think about that, then respond to it by surrendering your body to him. Give him your body. Present your body as a, a living sacrifice. We're responding to the mercies of God, just in case we forgot about what we read earlier in the book of Romans. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What's Romans 9 and what's Romans 1 through 11 all of? The mercies of God, right? Where God doesn't give us what we do deserve, but instead he acts towards us in grace and gives us a salvation we don't deserve. On the basis of the mercies of God, here's what he asks us to do. Surrender our body. Surrender our body to the Lord. Present ourselves, our bodies, everything about us, our mind, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, the thing we live with, the things that we function in this world with, our instruments for going through life, we're asked to present them. When do we do that? Well, ideally, we do it at salvation. Hopefully, our salvation, when we trust Christ, we surrender our soul to the Lord, and hopefully, in connection with that, we also surrender our body to Him. We take up our cross to live for Jesus Christ where we die to self and we live for him. Well, how do we live for him? We live for him with these bodies that we have. We use our hands to serve him. We use our mouth to speak for him. We use our eyes to look at things that are going to be glorifying to him. And hopefully that happens at the time of salvation. Not everybody always understands that, salvation. And so it can happen at a later time. Uh, why do we do it? Well, we do it once again in response to the, the grace of God, the mercies of God. And we recognize that, that God needs, or, or God's interested in our bodies. Now, the, the culture to which Paul was writing, the Greco-Roman culture, the, his people that he originally read this, this letter, the culture they lived in, said that there was a, a, a dualism that existed, that, that the soul was good, but the, the body was evil, and the material part of man was, was, was worthless, basically. And two things, number one, first of all, it didn't matter what you did in the body. It's just the, the soul is what mattered. So you can go ahead and live any kind of life you want to with your body, because the body's evil anyway. doesn't matter what you do with it. That's one thing. They, and then the other one was, that really the ideal, they thought, was to be out of your body, for the soul to be divorced from your body and, and gone from it and kind of blend in with the universe. 
Well, that's not the kind of hope God gives to us. Or, or God cares about the body. God made man, he made him body, and so that's how we're different than the angels. Angels are spirit beings. We have bodies. God made Adam with a body. He made out of the dust of the ground, and then he breathed the breath of life into him. The, the body matters. And uh, you, you can't read the Bible without recognizing that it matters what we do with our bodies, right? We're told, flee immorality. We're told to serve God with our bodies. And we're also told in Scripture that our bodies, yeah, we're going to die. And the immaterial part moves out. The soul moves out. By the way, what a difference you see. If you've ever been with somebody, at the moment they have left this world through death, you see the difference when the soul's gone, don't you? What a difference. What a difference. When the life force is gone, the immaterial part of the person is gone. What a difference. But God's promises for us in the future involve our souls being united with our bodies and our bodies being transformed, made glorious resurrection bodies like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it matters a whole lot that Jesus' body was put in the grave and then that his body came out of that tomb. It matters so much that God rolled away the stone with those angels, not so Jesus could get out. You know why he had that stone rolled away? So other people could get in and see that the body was gone. And then for 40 days after his resurrection, what did Jesus do? He went around and he showed to believers his resurrection body. And then at the end of the 40 days, what did he do? He ascended back to heaven. How? In that body. When he comes back to the clouds at the rapture, he's coming in that body. He's going to raise our, the dead bodies of believers. Living bodies of, of believers are going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And, and we're going to meet Jesus Christ in his body, in our bodies. And we're going to live with him forever in our bodies. The body matters. It matters what we do with it right now. It matters with what God's going to do with it in the future. And right now, we're called upon to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Do it to God. How do we do that? We, we, we do it with an act of the will. Sometimes we have to even consciously tell God, hey, Lord, take my hands. Use my hand. Use my body. Lord, I'm yours. We, we need to come to a place in our life we put ourselves at God's disposal. Lord, I'm here. This, and sometimes we need to do that every day, don't we? Lord, this is your day. I'm your instrument today. I'm your servant today. Use me any way that you want to. Sometimes we do it at salvation. But even if we do it at salvation, there, there's one big problem with the living sacrifice. Somebody said the big problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps jumping off the altar. <laughs> Have you ever jumped off the altar? <laughs> you know, we put ourselves at God's disposal, say, God, I'm going to live for you. My body's yours. Use me any way you want to. And then we kind of do what we want to do. We kind of get off in the wrong direction. We kind of get selfish again, get self-focused instead of God-focused. But we need to come to the place where we surrender ourselves to him. And sometimes as a living sacrifice, there's a need for resurrender. 
Sometimes there's a need for recommitment. Sometimes there's a need for rededication. Anybody in this room ever rededicated your life to the Lord? You got saved, but somehow you got off the track. I, my hand's up. My hand's up. You know, and, you know, that's a good thing to do. Sometimes we have to recognize, Lord, I'm going the wrong direction. I'm, 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 I'm messed up, Lord. But, but I want to rededicate myself to you. Now, if you've got to do that every day, there's something a little wrong. We do need to die daily to Christ. We do need to live, die daily to self and, and live for Christ. But there are, there are, sometimes there are some crisis moments in our life when we realize, Lord, I've been messing up. And we just really need to rededicate ourselves to the Lord. I may be talking to somebody this morning. You know you're not where you ought to be with God. You know that maybe you're saved. You've accepted Christ as Savior. The fact of the matter is you're not living for God. You're living for yourself. You're doing what you want to do. It's all about you. It's not about Jesus. It's about you. You know what you need to do this morning? You need to ready, rededicate your life to the Lord. You need to give him your body. Maybe rededicate your soul to him. You need to recommit yourself to the Lord. You don't need to get saved all over again, but you need to climb back up on that altar. Make your body a living sacrifice to the Lord for him to use the way that he wants to do it and the surrender of body is certainly something that's appropriate it, we're told here it's our reasonable service God is not asking us to do something way out there that just is totally unreasonable in, in fact when we consider what he's done for us how can he ask anything to do uh, to do anything that, that's greater than any price that he's paid for us when we think about what Jesus Christ has done for us, how does that little chorus go? How can I do less than give him my best after all he's done for me? You know, and that makes sense. That's our reasonable service. As believer priests, we should present our bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord. It's our fitting behavior. And it's beneficial. When we do that and we live that way, we prove that good and acceptable and perfect will of God and unconditional surrender of ourselves to God is not really a burdensome sacrifice. Jim Elliott, when as a missionary to the Alka Indians, gave his life down there in Ecuador. And he was a man with a lot of promise in a lot of different areas. And somebody said, how, how come you're going down there to reach those, try to reach those people out in the jungles? Why are you giving your life to that? And his response was, and I love it, he says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, there's, there's really nothing we sacrifice to God when we give to him that, that really counts for much of anything anyway. David Livingston, who served uh, the biggest share of his life as a doctor and missionary in Africa, says that people talk of the sacrifice that I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa can that be called sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward of healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with such a word, such a view, such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it's a privilege. 
anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and sink, but let, us, let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared to the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. When we offer God the living sacrifice of ourselves, he does not destroy what we give him, but he refines it, he purifies it, and uses it not only for his glory, but also he benefits us. Do you live for God? Are there any benefits in living for God? Yeah, Livingston recited some of them there. It's a good thing to live for the Lord. It's not a burdensome thing to give our soul and our body to the Lord Jesus Christ to use for his glory and for his cause. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. And Lord, this, this offering of ourselves, this presenting of ourselves that you've asked us to do, surrendering of ourselves, it's not an unreasonable thing, it's a good thing. And Lord, it pleases you, and we realize it, it even benefits us in this lifetime and for all of eternity. Father, I pray if there's anybody with us today that's never surrendered their soul to Christ in salvation, they might do that even this morning. And Lord, for us as Christians, help us to not jump off the altar. Help us to continually be surrendering ourselves to you. And if there are any in our midst today that are in need of a rededication, a recommitment, a, a total new redirection in their life as a believer, I pray they take that step today, considering the mercies of God and what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a verse, two of I Surrender All.